know, one of the most divisive doctrines in the church today is spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, just to give a little definition to this, is unique forms of the Holy Spirit's empowerment with which believers are equipped to serve the church. Spiritual gifts are unique forms of the Spirit's empowerment with which believers are equipped to serve the church. But when it comes to what gifts there are, whether all the gifts we see in the New Testament are still given today, whether certain gifts are more important than others, how gifts are meant to operate in the church, there's great division over this. We see some forms of Christianity that hold healing services and claim that the pastor has been gifted to provide miraculous, instantaneous healing to anyone who believes. We see denominations that claim the spiritual gift of tongues is evidence of being baptized with the Spirit and the gateway to a victorious Christian life. And then maybe a bit closer to home, we see influential pastors and teachers who are together for the gospel, but they're differing over whether the gifts of prophecy, tongues, healing still continue, whether they've ceased. And these disagreements kind of dominate the landscape of spiritual gifts. And as we, as we look out over that landscape, it's tempting for us to just leave it alone. It's tempting for us just to say, I, I don't know what to think, but unity is more important, so let's just not think about it. And of course, unity is extremely important. That's what we've been looking at the last two weeks. We just sang and prayed for unity. We, we've been in Ephesians 4, verse 3, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is, this is the first call that Paul gives to a church to walk worthy of the Gospels. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. And we're to do this by cultivating relationships with each other that are marked by humility and gentleness and patience. We're to do this by reorienting our minds around the realities of the gospel, one body, one spirit, one Lord, so on. It's a good impulse for us to desire to preserve unity. That's a good, right impulse. But here's the thing. When it comes to spiritual gifts, ignoring the topic for the sake of unity is not an option. According to the passage that we're looking at this morning, using our spiritual gifts is essential to unity. Spiritual gifts are not meant to be divisive. Far from being an instrument of division, spiritual gifts are actually tools that we've been given to cultivate the unity of the Spirit. Rather than creating division, they should be fostering unity. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. We're continuing this series through this book called One in Christ. We're making our way now through the second half of the letter. So in the first three chapters of this letter, for those of you that, that were not able to join us for those, just let me very briefly explain what we took five months to cover. Paul is expounding the realities of the saving grace of God in Christ. He, he, is, he is telling us all that God has done for us by his grace in Jesus to save us through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And, and, and now because of what God has done, we are God's people. He has called us to be his people. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, kind of the turn of the book, he says, Therefore I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, because of what God has done, because of his grace in Christ, because of all his saving blessings to you, respond to that by walking in a manner worthy of the calling, walking, walking in line with that gospel, in line with that grace, walking as the new people he's called you to be. And the very first thing he says in that vein is walk in unity. We've been looking at walking in unity. And, and our passage today, in some ways, is a, con is a continuation of that theme. Unity is still a theme. 
but he specifically is going to call them to walk in unity by walking in gifts of grace. Walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called by walking in the spiritual gifts of grace that you've been given. That's the call this morning. Walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called by walking in the spiritual gifts of grace that you have been given. Our passage this morning is Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. I'm going to read all the way through verse 16 because that's really what the unit is. We're going to take two weeks to cover this larger unit. And so we'll read verses four, chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. And then today we're going to look specifically at 7 through 10. So let's read Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I'm excited to preach on this whole passage and get to next week's passage, but we want to lay the foundation this week in verses 7 through 10, where Paul brings up the, the uh, theme of spiritual gifts. And so we're, let's, let's just jump in here and look at verse 7 first. Paul begins this section with this statement in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Just make a few observations about this verse, which kind of launches Paul in this next unit. First, notice that the statement begins with but. This means that he's contrasting something, right? Contrasting what he just said. So what is the contrast? Well, verses 4 through 6, he said that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's contrasting the unity of these gospel realities with the diversity of the gifts we've received. The unity of all these truths of the gospel with the diversity of our spiritual gifts. You see, Paul's weaving into this larger call to unity the reality of diversity within that unity. And this, just, this is just part and parcel of something that we see in all of Paul's letters, that, that we are called to be one, but we're not called to be the same. Gospel unity is not uniformity. It is oneness in diversity. And one aspect of this diversity that we're seeing in this passage is spiritual gifts. We are diverse in our gifting. Next, he says grace was given to each one of us. And at first, you say, yeah, we've been saved by grace. You think he's talking about the grace of salvation. But we know he's talking about something a little bit more unique because he says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's the same type of thought that he expresses in Romans 12, 6, where he says in Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. So, so grace is what saves us, but then as believers, God gives unique forms of grace essentially to each of us in ministries. 
So Paul said in chapter 3 that he received the grace of ministry to the Gentiles. And he's saying that each of us has received, has received a unique measure of grace from Christ. What Paul's teaching here is that every single believer, every single person whom God has saved by his grace, so, so, so if, if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, this is true of you, you have received a unique manifestation of that grace in a different spiritual gift. Every believer has received a unique gift of grace. The gifts listed in the New Testament include prophecy, service, teaching, giving, leadership, mercy, wisdom, knowledge, miracles, healing, helping, administration, tongues, interpretation. And even from that list, it's probable that these are not, that's not exhaustive, but that these are examples of the kinds of spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. But Paul's point is simple. Each one of us has received a unique gift of grace from Jesus Christ. Believer, he has given you a spiritual gift. Probably multiple spiritual gifts. Now, if you're a parent, then you know what it is to give gifts to your children. You also know what it is to get that extra special, somewhat more expensive, super exciting gift for your children. And unfortunately, you also know what it is for your child to open that extra special, somewhat more expensive, super exciting gift and to play with the box that it came in instead and not to be that excited about it. You know what it is for that extra special gift to sit on the shelf, unplayed with, alone, collecting dust, until it takes on the status of a forgotten toy, and then Pixar comes and decides to turn it into the next installment of Toy Story. Every parent knows the disappointment of their child not appreciating and enjoying these gifts that we thought they would like. Let me ask you this morning, believer, do you appreciate the grace gift that Christ has given you? Do you enjoy it? Do you use it? Or do you set it aside and ignore it and let it collect dust and act like it's no big deal? I think we can all be like that little child who plays with the box and not the gift when it comes to the spiritual gifts that Christ has given us. We can all be guilty of not appreciating our gifts and not using our gifts and not making much of them. But Paul does something surprising here that can help us with this. This was surprising to me. He points us to Christ's ascension. He points us to Christ's ascension. And what he does is he connects the ascension of Christ to heaven with the gifts that Christ gives us. And he does this in such a way that I think if we see this, it's going to make us thankful for and excited about and eager to use our spiritual gifts. And so we're talking about spiritual gifts today, but for the rest of the time we're going to talk about the ascension of Christ and then we're going to see how Paul weaves the ascension of Christ into this theme of spiritual gifts in a way that, that again, I think should excite us and motivate us and, and, and help, us, help us see what amazing gift this really is. You know, sometimes as a parent, you just need, you just need to help your kids see what it does, right? And, and, and that's what Paul's doing here. He's helping us see what these gifts are about. And so four things that Paul teaches about Christ's ascension in this passage, and we're going to see as we go eventually how this connects to our spiritual gifts. But four things that Paul teaches about Christ's ascension in verses 8 and 10. So, so first, Christ ascended only after he first descended. Christ ascended only after he first descended. So let's look at verses 8 and 9 again. It says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Paul begins by quoting from Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a a psalm which recounts God's past victories for Israel over her enemies and looks forward to his final future victory over her enemies. And the psalm describes God delivering his people out of Egypt, conquering Israel's enemies in the land of Canaan, and then ascending to his temple in Mount Zion. And Paul takes this story of God's deliverance and God's victory and God's ascent in the Old Testament, and he says, this is talking about Jesus. This, this psalm talking about God's victory over Egypt, God's victory over Canaan, God's ascent to Mount Zion. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who ascends to the true Mount Zion. But just like God in the Old Testament, in a sense, had to come down to deliver them. He, he, he came to Israel before ascending to Mount Zion. So also before ascending to heaven, Jesus descended to us. The text says he descended to the lower regions, the earth. We don't really talk that way, but just to put it plainly, what it's talking about is literally the ground that we walk on. He, he, he descended to the earth. Before Christ ascended to heaven, he descended from heaven. The Son of God took on flesh, became fully man, and he literally walked this earth. He walked the ground that we walked on. And why did he do this? Why did he descend to us? Well, just like God descended to deliver Israel from slavery to Egypt, so Christ descended to deliver us from our sins. And not only did he descend to earth, he descended to the cross, where he bore our sins in his body and absorbed the righteous wrath of God that was toward us. And not only did he descend to the cross, but he descended to the grave. His body died, and the Son of God was buried in the grave. You know, we cannot fathom the heights from which Christ descended in heaven. We, 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 we can't wrap our minds around how high he was. And at the same time, we cannot fathom the depths to which Christ descended in dying on the cross. We can't know the heights he came, or we, can't, we cannot know the depths that he went to in taking on the wrath of God and dying on the cross. But you know, this morning, church, that measure, which we cannot actually fathom, but we can, we can see, we see how high he was, how low he was, we can't get our eyes around it, but that is the measure of his love for you. That, that gap, that span from where he ascended to where he descended, that, that is his love for you, church. He went from the highest place to the lowest place to deliver you from your sins because he loves you and he desires you and he hates the sin that separates you from him. This this, this descent just shows us the glory of his love. This morning, if you've never turned to Christ in faith, you've never repented of your sins, you've never received his forgiveness and known his love, I want to urge you to do that Even this morning, come to the God who descended from the highest heaven to the cross for you. Come to him and know his forgiveness and know his love. He is the one who descended. Before he ascended, he descended. It's the first point Paul makes. Second, Christ ascended as the victor over a host of enemies. So before he ascended, he descended. Second, Christ ascended as the victor over a host of enemies. So let's look again at verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. 
Now in Psalm 68, what this is describing is, 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 is picturing God like a military leader who has defeated his enemy, and now he's leading them as captives behind him like a triumphal procession into the city, up to Mount Zion. And again, Paul applies this to Christ. Paul says that after Christ died, he did not remain there. After he descended, he didn't stay descended, but he ascended. And as he ascended, he rose from the dead. And in rising, he defeated every enemy of God's people. He defeated our sin, he defeated death, and he defeated every evil spiritual power in this world. And as he ascended into heaven, he ascended as a conquering king and a victorious king with his enemies on display as a host of captives behind him. Just this, this picture of Christ as a victor, as a conqueror through death, with his enemies as captives. They've been soundly defeated. If you just turn over in Colossians a few pages, you see this pictured. He, he says that, God made us alive with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of death that stood against us, nailed him to the cross. Then verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All these evil rulers and authorities, all these enemies of God's people, they, they, they are put to open shame. They are humiliated in the cosmos as Christ defeats them. And ascends to heaven with them as a host of captives. That, that, that's the picture that Christ has given us. All these enemies of God's people, soundly defeated, even humiliated, as he ascends as a victor. The descension of Christ reveals his great love for us, but the ascension reveals his great power. He's not only a sacrificial king, he's a conquering king. He's a victorious king. He's the victor over every enemy of our souls. And what, what an encouraging picture that is for us right now, as we see just again, the, the chaos of those worlds. Christ has defeated every enemy of our souls. They've been publicly put to shame as he ascended into heaven. He is over it all, which leads us to the next point. Christ ascended above all things in order to fill all things. Christ ascended above all things in order to fill all things. Look at verse 10 again. He says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So to where has Christ ascended? Where did he go when he ascended? According to this verse, he has ascended to the highest heaven. You know, we tend to think simply like there's heaven and earth. Just, there's, there's two levels, heaven and earth. But the New Testament speaks in a few places of heaven having almost levels to it. Uh, like when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, how he was caught up in the third heaven. We wonder, what? what? Well, there's just one heaven. Now, I think what's happening in these verses is Paul's describing what, what, what we are so unfamiliar with in Western society, that, that there is a spiritual realm that exists, and there are rulers and authorities, and, and though, though we don't really know what we're talking about, in a sense, we, we can see clearly enough that, that there, there are, uh, in a sense, levels of authority in the cosmos, different heavens, so to speak, different levels where the, the, you know, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. We know he's not the king of heaven, but he's the prince of the power of the air, right? So Jesus, as he ascends, he ascends higher than every one of these places of authority, higher than every, every power, every authority, ascends all the way to the highest heaven, ascends to the right hand of the Father. This is how Paul describes this in chapter 1. Remember, he talked about his ascension in chapter 1, and he said that God has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named. Jesus is above it all. 
He's above everything in this world. He's above every power in the heavens. He's above the cosmos. He is at the highest position in all of creation. He sits at the Father's right hand. And to what end? He ascended above all things that he might fill all things. He ascended to the highest place so that his dominion would stretch across the universe, over all things. The whole cosmos filled with his presence and with his power and with his glory. Makes me think about the, the Old Testament promise that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. The picture of the waters covering the ocean, just filling every nook and cranny of the ocean floor. And the glory of the Lord will be like that. And, and, and that's the glory of Christ. He ascends above all things to fill all things. He fills the universe, and he one day will fill the universe in a visible way. So we've seen in this description of his ascension, Paul's just, I think, drawing us here to the glory of Christ, to the glory of the love of the one who descended from heaven for us, the, the glory of the power of the one who ascended and conquered and is seated above all things, the glory of his presence and his sovereignty and his glory He's just reminding us of the glory of Christ in his ascension. But what, do we, what does this have to do with spiritual gifts? Why is he talking about this in the context of spiritual gifts? Because it's from this ascended, exalted, victorious, glorious position that Christ gave gifts to the church. Look again at verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So you think about the glory of all of this, and then you realize the culminating act of Christ in this glorious ascension, the, the, the last thing he did in all of this was he gave gifts of grace, spiritual gifts, to you and to me and to all members of his body. This is the crescendo of the act. This is is the the climax of this final stage of Christ's first coming. he, He came, he lived a perfect life, he died a sacrificial death, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, exalted at God's right hand, and then what does he do? He gives us gifts. This glorious Savior has done this. And that should get our attention, shouldn't it? That that's what he did. And we think about what Paul says here, and again, how it relates back to Psalm 68, where he quotes this from. There is a difficulty in this text that I feel like we need to address, because I don't want anyone to go back to Psalm 68 and, and find this on their own and say, say what's going on? So, so I, want, I want to make this known to us, that Paul quotes Psalm 68, saying, and he gave gifts to men. If you turn back to Psalm 68 in your Bible, what you're going to see is the phrase, and he received gifts from men, from among men. So Paul quotes it as he gave gifts to men. He's quoting Psalm 68, which says he received gifts among men. And if you went to thesaurus.com and you clicked antonyms and you put gave, you're going to see received. So it's not just like using a different, it's like the opposite word, right? What's going on here? How, how is Paul doing this? Well, there are really five or six different views about this, guys. And, and you know, this morning we studied in our, our build time um, why do some people disagree on what the Bible means? And this is a great example of people disagreeing on what the Bible means. And so I want to just begin by saying that this, there's, there's no consensus here. 
but I do think we can say a few things that, that first, there's some views that I just think as believers would say that's not a plausible option for us. Views that essentially teach that Paul just changed the word to suit his own purposes. Paul, Paul, Paul wants a verse. This verse talks about the ascension. Oh, it says he almost changes the gate. That, that, that makes my point better. There are views like that. Now, I don't think this is, if that was true, it would, it would create great problems for us in how we view our Bible, but I don't think it's even plausible. And here's why I don't think it's plausible, because of everything we know about the Apostle Paul. Think about Paul. Paul was raised in the Old Testament Scriptures. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul has a high regard for the Scriptures. He, he persuades people from the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, it would not be very persuasive if as he's doing that, he's going around changing words. <laughs> that would not be very persuasive. And I don't think Paul would do that. If I told you, I'm going to preach the scriptures to you every week, and then I changed a word in the passage to make a point, you would say, you're not preaching the scriptures. I'm not going to listen to you. So I, I just don't think it's plausible that Paul was just intentionally changing words willy-nilly to make his own point from the Old Testament. I still think that view is plausible. It's, it, obviously, it would, it would have problems if it was, but I don't think that's even a problem for us because we know Paul had such a high regard for the Old Testament scriptures. So that said, it's still difficult to know exactly how he got from received to gave. And there are several interesting positions, several interesting views, and I really don't want to get into all of it this morning. It's not clear which one is correct. I think it's encouraging that there are multiple views that could be correct because it shows that there is, there is rationale for this sort of thing. But without going into all the details, I do want to tell you which way I lean on this, and I think it can be encouraging and this might not make sense at first, but I believe Paul changed the word, but not the meaning. I believe Paul changed the word, but not the meaning. And let me explain that. In Psalm 68, where it says he received gifts among men, there's a good case that can be made, and I can talk to you about this after, if you will, but there's a good case that can be made that that word received includes a wider range of meaning that, that really means he received in order to give back. He received in order to give. If you think of the military image again, which we have in Psalm 68, leading a host of captives, if, if a military leader conquers a people, leading a host of captives, he's receiving the spoils. He's receiving the spoils from that victory. But what does a king do with those spoils? A king distributed them to his people. He did not just keep them all to himself. He distributed them to his military. He received it with the notion of giving it and distributing it. I think this is what's going on here. And, and it makes sense in the context of spiritual gifts because of how the Holy Spirit himself is so integral to all of this. You know, it's, it, this is not really planned, but today is, is officially Pentecost Sunday, the day that the Spirit was poured out on the church. And listen to what Peter said on Pentecost in Acts 2.33. And, and just think about how this is helpful here. Peter said this, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that's the ascension, having received... From the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So catch what he said there. Christ ascended to the Father. Christ received the Holy Spirit. Christ gave the Holy Spirit to his church, who then manifested himself through the gift of tongues. And you can see that whole notion caught up in that moment. He, he received the gift in his ascension, but he received it in order to give it to us. You can see the parallels. Christ ascended to the Father as the conquering king, received the Spirit from the Father, and then gave him to us, including his gifts. 
So th that's helpful to me. There's, there's definitely views on this, and I, I think what I want you to know, the reason I want to go into this is because we can be confident in our Bibles even when we don't understand exactly what's going on all the time. There's things that are hard to understand. Peter himself said that in 2 Peter 3. But we can be confident in the authors of Scripture and in the Word of God. As an aside, I do want to say that's why we're, that's why we're doing that study on, on, on Sunday mornings at Build. It's online if you can't come at right now. It's online. The Bible is clear, but it's not always easy. And when we come across challenges like this, we, we just want to press into them and be equipped to navigate them. But with all that said, now, now let's just kind of bring it back to Paul's point. And let's make these connections. So, so, so as Christ ascended, he gave gifts to men. This was the culmination. And we saw in verse 10 that he ascended in order to fill all things. Right, now, now, here's the question I want to make. He, he ascended to fill all things. When he ascended, he gave gifts to men. Back in Ephesians 1.23, when Paul talks about the ascension of Christ, in verse 22 and 23, he said, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ ascended to fill all things. We are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And he gave us gifts. He gave us gifts. And then later in chapter 4, next week's text, we see this in verse 13. That we are attaining to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you guys see the connection there with fullness going on in this book? Christ ascended to fill all things. The church is called to be his fullness, and he has given us gifts so that we can attain to his fullness. That's what is going on with these gifts. Why has he given us gifts? So that we can live out our identity as the fullness of this glorious Savior as his body. He is the one who fills all things, and we have been gifted to represent him. And if we ignore our gifts, don't use our gifts, then we're not going to be able to live that out. He descended to save us from our sins. He ascended as the conquering king. He's exalted over all things, and the culmination of it all is he's given each of us a unique spiritual gift to equip us so that we as the body can fulfill our identity as his body. That's what these gifts are about. It's exciting. Exciting to think about spiritual gifts this way. And so I just want to give a few applications as we close. Next week, we're going to look very practically at what does this actually look like in the local church. But this morning, just three simple applications. First, know your gifts. Know your gifts. Now, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, I only know of one way to figure them out. Serve the church. Serve and serve and serve some more. Try your hand in different ministries. Take advantage of different opportunities. This is how you discover your gifts. You serve. And as you serve, you consider, is God blessing my service? Is he, is he blessing this ministry? Uh, consider, am I receiving affirmation from other believers in this service? Even consider, is, is, this, is this bringing a, a, an excitement to me as I serve? Because often that's an indicator that that's a gift that God has given you, is if, if it just thrills you to do it. When I teach and preach, it just thrills me to teach and preach. Just like the only way to know what you got for Christmas is to unwrap the box, the only way to know your gifts is to serve the church. Serve, serve, and serve. Second, once you know your gifts, appreciate your gifts. Christ has given each of us a unique set of gifts. None of them are exactly the same. He's composed the body in such a way that we complement each other. 
but it's, it can be tempting to despise your gift and to look at someone else's gift and to wish you had that gift and not this gift. But when you feel that way, remember Christ's ascension. Remember the glory of his love. Remember the glory of his power. Remember the glory of his kinship. And remember that he's given this gift to you so that you, as part of his body, can be a part of demonstrating his fullness to the world. That's a huge it's a huge vision. We want to be part of something big, right? Part of something, something grand and great. As humans, this is grand and great and big, is that we get to use our gift to be his fullness on the earth. And so appreciate that gift. And what better way to appreciate the gift than to use it? Use your gifts. I just want to read from a few passages here to call you to use the gifts that Christ has given you in love for each other and for the glory of God. For as in one body we have many members, and many members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of each other. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever.